0: To episode 466 of Constructed Criticism, I'm your host Hezi, and I'm joined by my co-host, a man I spent a month on Mars with last night, Abe Stein. That was a very weird dream to hear about, but
1: I'm glad we made it home.
0: We did. We, we made it. We made it back. And a man who who my TikTok is like reading our conversations very clearly, Mason Clark.
2: What up? How you doing? That was TikTok. Theory. That was so weird. It was very weird. Yeah, I told Spencer where I was going on vacation, Abe, and then he like opened his TikTok ten minutes later, and like the first thing he got was like an ad for the same place.
0: It was it was weird. It's not that weird, actually. It's That's pretty happening, weird. Happening.
1: That has been, no, 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 no. That's been happening forever. It's
0: not weird anymore.
1: It's just the dystopia well, we live
0: in. So hold on. I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole, but like there have been like pretty big journalistic research efforts into this as to whether or not they actually are tracking this type of stuff. And the answer is apparently no, but the algorithms are so good at figuring out like a thing. For example, it is possible that because it knows I had a conversation with Mason, that's true. It doesn't know what I said to Mason. But it is possible that because Mason has booked a hotel, it knows that Mason has done that or something. And thus, because I had a conversation with Mason, and might also think I am interested in this thing. But it's not actually listening to the conversation with me and Mason or reading it.
1: Right. It's just listening to the fact that Mason booked travel right. and hotel for this thing. And then you right. talked to Mason. And then right. it's betting that you either talked to him about it or, like, he said something about it but to it's, you. It's, and it's, then.
2: It, is is it, this a bad time to say I sell our DMs to Zuckerberg to, to make a little extra cash full time? It's it's how, like, I, how, how, how much you get? A, a quarter a message. It's like a pretty good rate since since you the one message rate. lines. It's so good for me. It's, yeah, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> my my brother and I have gotten. Great. He's like, hey, how are you? And then I'm like, a dollar. Keep it up.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, my brother. You know what, Mason just throwing me under the bus. Throwing me under the bus. I've gotten so much crap for this in my life. It's how my brain works. If you guys don't know what I'm talking about, just DM me sometime. You'll figure it out pretty quick. we we talking
2: about the solution. You click the return button instead. That's
0: I do. Cool. I do that a lot. You know what? Really? I don't I don't need this kind of attack. Speaking of attacks, let's attack getting better together today. Let's talk about always improving. And Mason, you were on vacation last week, obviously, from our just Really fun to start this conversation. The point of this podcast is about always improving. What did you do on your
2: vacation to be always improving? Didn't do much magic type stuff. But when I got back, I did because I played a charity modern tournament last Saturday and originally was going to be playing a team modern tournament this Saturday. Unfortunately, I've had some things come up. I wasn't able to play that. But to get ready for that, I really wanted to make sure that, you know, if I was going to drive three hours and I was having a homie ride with me, another one driving three hours from another state in to play the tournament, that I wanted to make sure I was coming in as prepared as I could be. And personally, I don't own the ring anymore. I bought it and sold it immediately. And so I was like, okay, I need to play a deck that doesn't play the ring. I'm sort of just of the belief it's not going to be around soon. And so it's like, okay, I got to figure out something to play. And so I pretty quickly went to the black red Scam deck um, after thinking about it a little bit and sort of Got the cards for that and practiced it and really liked it and really worked on getting that deck a real mastery of it and like trying to get a great understanding. And specifically coming to my bar from Mulligans being incredibly high when playing it. It was one of those things where it is a mid-range deck that sort of gets these free wins. But when you're on the draw, we're in a bad matchup. In that deck, you just have such strong draws that you shouldn't settle for medium ones. And so I was Mulliganing 7s that I think a lot of people would keep because it just didn't have like a turn one thing or a powerful turn two thing for sure in the matchup. So just mulliganing super aggressively going down to four a lot uh, on the day in the charity tournament and, you know, lost in top four and was pretty happy with my play or whatever, and just mulliganed a lot and did a lot of like very powerful turn one to turn two things to get the ball going. And was really happy to have, you know, my mulligans be tight leading up to it and also just get a much better understanding for the scheme deck.
0: I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to piggyback on this. I, also, really focused on mulliganing and understanding mulligans this week. For context, I got a job. Uh, decided that I had a few RCQs left and I decided finally, again, that I actually am gonna forego the sponsorship to Atlanta and actually not go. Uh, Cause my new job uh, has a really important date right before that. And I really wanna focus on like crushing it here. So this weekend I played the Modern Challenge where I've mostly been playing Pioneer Challenges recently and decided to pick up a deck that was Mason and I played on stream uh, last week, a Tron deck with Bridge in the main, and was really interested, uh, did some testing with Quentin and Matt, former co of the show, in uh, Discord, and realized pretty quickly a couple things. Um, the, the first was that I think Giganta was a trap in that deck specifically. Doesn't really offer much. It can't really cast any of your spells. And then also, I think Giganta is a dead giveaway that you're kind of either playing Tron or playing uh, what's
2: the other one? It, it's Fair, Breach, and Tron are the three most played Giganta decks. Oh,
0: I guess yeah. I guess I guess Death Shadow. I had not thought of that when making this decision. So one of the things that I did is I wanted something that gave me life Link in the sideboard. Decided to go for better Skull due to the fact that it's uh, you play a lot of six man Ugin, so you put creatures into play. As well as the fact that you just get a lot of excess mana bouncing into your hand. And like, you want the recurring lifelink more so than you like Warren Coil. So I cut the Giganta for that. And then I kind of looked at the two lists. There was a, uh, 4-0 prelim by, I want to say Dom. And then there was another list and kind of combined, combined what was going on. Warping Whale seemed really important in testing. Just due to Orcus Bowmasters. And then from there, I had to focus on Mulligans, and it was actually kind of jarring uh, to jump into the challenge with Tron, where I think that in like the first couple rounds, I was Mulliganing incorrectly because Tron, kind of like what Mason was saying with Scam, you don't have to settle. And I was kind of settling early on in the tournament. I started 2-2, ended up uh, 6-2, and a lot of that was because I adjusted my mulligan decisions as the treatment went on. And it seems obvious, right? But I think there's like a pretty big difference between the decks I typically play in modern, like, uh, Merc Tide and creativity to something like Tron, where like it's actually really important to care about specific things real, like a lot. And I also think that from like my RCQs the last couple of months, my mulligan decisions have been. Less aggressive than they should be with the London Mulligan. And so playing a deck like Tron, it really compounded at the start of the tournament where I already dealt Mulligan aggressively enough with the London Mulligan and now I'm playing a deck that really needs to do that and gets to do that.
1: yeah, I think it's never a bad time to reinforce just like how important Mulliganing is in just every format, especially with a lot of the decks that are the most powerful proactive decks in the format. like I remember um you know right after, Dallas, something that Mason, like he'd watched a few of my matches on day two, Mason really complimenting me on, and I felt like I did a really good job with with mono green for that entire tournament was just throwing back hands that didn't make any sense, and the more you do that, the more you're going to have good results. You know, it, you have to be you have to be using all the tools at your disposal, and so I'm glad that um, you know, especially with Tron, which is another deck of just I'm assembling assembling good mana and casting really powerful things that uh, it, it's where your emphasis was.
2: Yeah, I actually had someone in coaching who, I think we met on Friday of last week, and they had recorded some games for me to watch of Explore and Heaven MTGO. And they were playing gruel Vehicles, and they were just keeping hands that were like, four lands, a Seeker's Chariot, Skyboat, Reckless Seeker, And I was like, what are your thoughts you want to keep from all this? And like, oh, I want to keep this, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, I think this is like a really average hand but you don't mulligan these. And I was like, you have to mulligan every seven that doesn't have an elf. Trust me. You know, we spent a bunch of time talking about it. And then, you know, anecdotally, the next day, they won their first RCQ ever. And they played the same deck, and they just said, I didn't keep any hand that didn't have... Because I told them, if it doesn't have Damping Sphere against Lotus Field or Elf, you have to mulligan you your seven. Do not think about it. And they just... They went undefeated in the Swiss, undefeated in the top eight, and won, so congratulations to them. Don't want to say your name, just in case, because I also kind of blasted you at the start there. It might be. But, you know, like, it was a good learning moment for them of, like, you're playing a deck that is, like, trying to play Elf in the three do not settle for less on your first seven. Your sixes are going to be fine, even if you're down a piece so often with an elf deck, especially on the play, right? Imagine all the times you've won with Monogreen or Gruul, or whatever, where you've lost to it. And they still have cards left in hand, you know? You don't need all of your pieces. Sometimes you just overwhelm them. And maybe you win a little less convincingly, but you'll still win.
1: My okay. improvement this week is, in a different vein, I've also been, um, you know, taking time away from playing a lot of magic um, since deferring my pt invites i'm not gonna be in barcelona this weekend i've kind of been allowing myself to take some time away from actually playing magic i realized that after like both rcs for san diego and, and dallas kind of back to back i was uh, i was a bit stretched thin and then with a lot gonna work but i have been playing um side spire which is a deck building game and i've logged like 500 hours almost in that game it's like really really um, fun and satisfying. But something that I have done in that 500 hours is kind of gotten into a pattern of, oh, I know exactly how, how it is I'm going to kind of build my deck, how it is I'm going to, you know, the, the things I want to prioritize, how I'm going to try to approach things to like maximize winning. And so what I've been doing in the last, you know, kind of week and a half has been changing my approach and saying, okay, I know what it is I would do to have the highest win percentage. Let me try something else. Uh, you know, let me try to do something different with my strategy with how I'm doing things and just kind of practicing learning things over succeeding at, at it, right? Rather than maximizing my, my win percentage, I'm like choosing to experience things differently, try different things and just kind of like throw ideas at the wall, even if they might fail to kind of learn more about how that works and practice that feeling of like, okay, I'm going to do this thing that I'm going to learn something from for something else. Right. But not necessarily care about what it is in the moment. I think that's something we're often in magic. Uh, it's a really, really hard thing for me to do. I think for a lot of people to do to sacrifice what's working in the moment or take a step back from that in the moment or something, even, you know, will work um, well to try to find something that works differently or better because there's value in
2: knowing that too. So that's, that's where I've been always improving this week. Thing that players do pretty typically. And you sort of mentioned that is we're really good at finding good lines quickly or good decks and we hold on to them. I think, especially like the MTGO hive mind, like we are good at finding a good deck and we sort of be like, oh, this is good. You know, this is sort of the bar or whatever. And we very rarely push to find a great deck or a great line. Right. And I, I think sort of leans what you're talking about there of like, well, you got to try new things and explore. And like maybe your win rate suffers for a little while, but like finding that one thing could be the difference between, you know, your 55% win rate deck and your 60% win rate deck.
0: This is, this is actually legitimately why I played the Tron deck that I played this weekend, was watching Mason's stream. And one of the things that, if you don't watch Mason's stream, I'll just plug in for a second. He's he's a big fan of, like, just having fun on stream and trying things on stream and, like, not really caring about the result. But, like, what's really cool is, like, you know, you might see a, a deck that, like, has, you know, eight drops in it with bridge And you're like, there's no way this works. There's like actually not a chance this is a good idea. And then I watched a match that Mason played uh, that I still demand that we record a video on, to watch the replay and like talk about it together, Mason. Where Mason molds down to, I don't remember if you mold the three or four, but it was one of the best matches I've ever watched in Magic. The the thing is is like what you're talking about Abe where you're like trying different things, that's what Mason does on stream, and it encouraged me to do that in challenges. But like normally I'm like, oh no, like I want to do well in the challenge. I want to just like play a deck I know or play a deck that like gives me a reasonable chance to like e- exactly what you talked about Abe, right? Where it's like the like this is what I would do. And it's like, well that's that's if if modern season's coming up and I play cha- a bunch of challenges, do I want to be the best Merc type player? Or do I want to be the most modern player so that I can pivot whenever I believe pivoting is right? Awesome. Well, that is going to do it for always improving. No Patreon shoutouts this week. But if you want to support the show directly, go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. Become a patron of the show. Honestly, we had a really good discussion in the Discord this week. If you're a patron of $5 or more, you get access to the Discord. And I don't know, we had like three or four, but we, you know, we talked about mulliganing during I was improving. There were some good discussions about mulliganing
2: today. Mason's got something to say. I think we saw a lot of different hands this week and we all, there's a lot of different dissenting opinions. And then there was one hand that we all agree on. And it's kept me up at night since I saw it.
0: What is, what is that?
2: It, it was the blue oh, light control the, hand. Oh,
0: that was not that hand. That, that was not, it, that, hand, that, that, was not that,
2: that hand haunts my dreams. This last week, though, you know, <laughs> I haven't stopped <laughs> thinking about it. <laughs> it's
0: such a dork. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, if you want to see these type of hands, head over to patreon.com slash ccmg. Become a patron of $5 or more. Uh No housekeeping this week. Let's move on to our main topic, and that is pick reasonable deck. This was one that I wanted to do because Mason will not stop calling people reasonable deck gamers or calling himself a reasonable deck gamer, and I, I love it. There, there are a few things that like my co-hosts have taught me throughout the my time on the show, and I, one of them was a huge one from Michael Hinderocker when he talks about like the power of the mulligan, right, and like how important that is. And it's it's the literal first thing that you should do to get good at Magic is learning how to mulligan because it's it's the thing that you are in the most control of, right? And Mason has brought this, and I think it's going to be another pillar of CCMDG of like being a reasonable deck gamer and kind of the power that that gives you in deck selection. Because so often, and and something that i talked about a lot in coaching is doing this rather than trying to do some other things that we'll get into in this episode. But Mason, Mm -hmm. when you talk about it, what do you mean?
2: And and Abe and I will join in when we can, but what do you mean by being a reasonable deck gamer? It means really picking a deck that, is going to have some solid matchups. It might not have like a perfect spread. It's, you know, I'm not talking about being like a, you have to play rectus mid range game or whatever, but a deck that has like a good spread of matchups has reasonable plans and sort of is a solid choice. And isn't like, you know, raising a lot of like eyes and a lot of like curious questions, right? Like you can take those sort of risks, but on average, you kind of want to play a deck that's going to give you the best chance of winning and not have incredibly polar matchups. If your goal is to get like a solid finish, right? It's actually funny. If you listen to the Jerry Thompson podcast last week, Jerry seemed to have this revelation for the first time, which was very interesting, where he talks about how on the plane, he realized in team events in the past, he and his friends have always played decks that have these 80-20 matchup spreads and tried to figure out exactly the best way to go about things, and that he would much rather have a team that is a full of decks that don't give up any free wins, right? And then they end up getting top four in the most recent SUG, doing that sort of model, right? And the reasonable that gamer thing is sort of a very similar thing where it's like, I might have matchups that are bad, right? Like you might be playing Murktide and there's just four color that's a problem, but I have reasonable plans against everyone. I come to that matchup with a game plan. I'm ready to go. I think
0: that there are really interesting moments where we convince ourselves our deck is a reasonable choice. Actually, I actually had a, a GP it was one of a few GPs with CC worldwide where I just kept convincing myself that like these like snake decks were like what needed to be good and like what I needed to play. And the, well, the data of my results said that the the data of like other people and like the things going on did not agree with that. And I've actually talked to uh, GBDDR about this before where there are some times where you know something that people don't. But the thing is is like you have to gauge like how likely something like that is. Is that what's happening? because it's not it's probably not as likely as you think. And one of the things that I think I found a lot of success in, in at least my career in thinking about like what a reasonable deck is, the Willie Abel approach to picking a deck. And one of his first rules is like, does it lose to aggro? Okay, if it doesn't, that's good. Does it lose to nonsense? Like, am I going to lose to just like absolute nonsense? And those are uh, two of his first three rules. I think he has an either an article or a video on this that you can check out. But Willy Edel was kind of like my inspiration for not just what got me into like playing a lot of mid-range decks, but like also why I really enjoy ramp decks. Like ramp decks, for example, don't lose to nonsense. Like you actually just, It's really hard to beat a ramp deck with nonsense. And I I think that that has inspired me into like picking decks like Murktide and like viewing them as gen and stuff like that. I don't know. What about
1: you, Abe? I think it's really important to just remember that when you're picking a deck and often when you're picking a deck, it's right for a season or for, you know, multiple events that you're going to make an investment in what you're playing, making sure that what you're picking isn't something that is going to need to be having its week to be remotely competitive is going to give you the most opportunity to succeed right if you're picking one deck you want to make sure that deck is something that you can play week in week out and you can know you know has a chance when you play against the field at large right like i was just doing a quick scan of mtg goldfish Because a good rule of thumb for me typically is, you know, if you're in that top decks on Goldfish for whatever format, when it comes to standard, even a really, really wide standard format, you're in those top, like, five, six decks. Sure, you might not be the number one best deck. That might not be what you're playing. It might be you're priced out. It might be you don't enjoy it. You're still playing something that's competitive, right? You're still playing something that's going to be on the same power level in the right, uh, you know... in the right avenue, you're going to be a deck that's going to be on someone else's sideboard guide. You know that's going to be something where everyone understands and respects that that's part of the equation, and that is just where you want to be at the bare minimum. If you're not bringing yourself to there, then you're not you're not giving yourself the opportunity to really start on the same footing with the competition for better or for worse. Right, starting the same footing can mean that you're right if you know something everyone doesn't. You have broken it. Right, if that's something you've done, then. That's great. You're not starting on the same footing. You're starting way ahead, but more often than not, you're probably putting yourself behind. And especially at the level of like you know your average RCQ, or even an event like an, an RC, depending on on your skill level, depending on the format, it's better to just avoid that risk and instead choose to start on that level playing field. So making sure that you're coming in with something that it, it is a deck in the conversation. It just gives you a huge edge, and and over over time, that edge will. Realize into your success, right? That's that's what really being a reasonable deck yeah. gamer is all about now.
0: it's This might be a little bit weird for the podcast, but I'm actually kind of curious. Like, I've only played in one RC since RC's happened. I think you've both played in two or three. Can, can we just round table, like, what decks we
2: picked for each RC? I, don't, uh, I, I don't think play. I think Abe and I both played two, and I had Pioneer for both and played Phoenix in both. But also, only time I've ever played Phoenix, for yeah. what it's worth. Outside of Expressive Iteration it was legal.
0: So, for what it's worth, I, I played, uh, played Mono White, and then uh and
1: standard notably
0: yes so thank thank you
1: thank you yeah i I played standard rakdos and i played mono green and
0: pioneer i think all of these fell under like reasonable gamer decks
1: and i think the best example is actually mason's choices right like at those times phoenix was on the radar but not necessarily in the conversation of oh this is the best thing to be playing like i played mono green stock green because i was like it's just the best thing to be playing i think it's just the, the best choice mason kind of deviated from that made a call but phoenix Even if that call wasn't perfect, the Arclight Phoenix deck is a known quantity. It does something powerful enough on level format. It is like definitionally a reasonable deck. Yeah, I think that's like a really important thing to
0: highlight. I actually think my example is like maybe the worst where like Mono White going into the USRC was the targeted deck. And I just focused on the mirror rather than focusing on more stuff. And then what ended Mm -hmm. up happening um, is Abe and I both missed on... Ob and Yeah, we both missed on Ob. And that card was, like, nutso butzo at that that RC. Yeah. But, Abe, in my opinion, you actually just picked the right deck at both of yours. The reason I want to do this is our next talking point is, like, why is deck selection so important? And Abe as somebody that, in my opinion, at both your RCs, picked the right deck. Like, why was deck selection important to you, and how did you land there?
1: I mean, the RCs are a little bit of a unique beast because they're being open deck list. But even just in general, your deck choice... I would say it's it's up there. It's probably like just a step below mulliganing, we've talked about in this episode already, in terms of the most important decision you make for a tournament because it has less that's in your control, your deck choice. Right? You can't control necessarily what the meta game around you is going to be, but you know, what you come to play with is is equally as important. And you know, for me, uh, especially at the level of an RC, you know, I have confidence that I'm a player who can succeed at that level, can can play really good magic and, and win a lot of matches. And so uh, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't exposing myself to a bunch of risk, you know, take, rolling the dice too much, made sure that my deck had plans for all the things I was playing against and was just going to stick to that and, and seeing where things lie. And for me, that's the right approach. But what makes your deck choice so important is that it defines everything, right? It, it defines the way you're gambling on every round you know the way that the way that you're rolling the dice on what your matchup's going to look like what your odds of how how the matchup looks for you is defined by what your deck is and what their deck is and so picking something that is more or less risky you know more or less those are those are hard decisions that are kind of up to you but regardless your deck has to be in the realm of what works in the format before you can do that right like to mason's and i kind of want to throw it to you here mason of like you know talking about your Arclight phoenix picks i think that really is the most indicative of why is it important to choose a reasonable deck? You know, that choice was was reasonable, but had its had its upsides, right? It's a little bit riskier maybe than me picking mono green, but uh, maybe what led you to that decision? I mean, I'd be really
2: in like. For the first RC in Atlanta, it was definitely a thing where Phoenix was on the uptick, and a lot of really strong players brought Phoenix and did really well, uh, despite Phoenix sort of falling off after that. And a big part of that was it was sort of like, hey, this deck is good against Rakdos as long as they don't have Go Blink. And it is good against green if you bring the right sideboard cards and you like have a bunch of shredders and thing in the ices. Basically, that was kind of like the uh, consensus. And you know, I think it played out similarly close to that to that one weekend. But then players adapted. And then when it came time for Dallas, uh, the metagame was actually in a very similar spot with the uh, rectos I'm sorry, the Boros Convoke deck uh, on the rise. And it occurred to me that I can simply put my Brotherhood's end in the main deck. And that would help me with the Rectos Sack deck, the Rectos Mid deck, and the Boris Convoke deck. And then I would be actually, besides that, in a very similar metagame position that we were in Atlanta six months prior. And so I sort of, honestly, in a lot of ways, well, I do think the deck is a baseline reasonable and really strong, especially if you don't run into graveyard hate, I think things like Treasure Cruise and my friends are pretty broken, as long as you don't run into hate. And there just wasn't hate. I didn't really play against anything except for Rest in Peace. That ended up doing me in in a round. But Regardless, that deck did really well and the conversion rate over those two weeks was good. And I think it was a moment in time thing of like, while I don't think Phoenix is a reasonable deck all the time, there are moments where it looks better. And I was willing to take a little bit of a higher risk on that, right? Like I had Monogreen with me. I think you know, our decks are actually pretty similar despite not talking to each other about it. And like, you know, I was very close to pulling the trigger on it because it seemed like, once again, stock reasonable deck, but I felt that the Phoenix deck was slightly better positioned and put me in a better spot to win and no one was really prepared for phoenix all my opponents outside of ironically the mirror round one everyone was like oh wow like phoenix you know blah blah, blah. and you know like a lot of people who were like oh i love the show whatever and they look at my deck list and like wow i wasn't expecting this you know and i think it's just a moment of like i felt confident with the deck i was really sure there wouldn't be a lot of graveyard hate there really wasn't it seemed well positioned against a lot of the decks I think it was, and at least for that period of time, you know, I don't want to say it is for all of it because I don't believe it to be true. But the data showed like Phoenix did well or whatever, and I just was one of the people that didn't do as well with it, you know. So I I think you know we talk about why is the deck choice so important. Like what Abe said of like, oh, it is the thing you have like the most control of. You can't control other people doing is true, and it's like you need to choose a deck that will play through the tournament and play through more than just what's good against the best deck. I think a common flaw and something that I've believed for a long time is that players metagame the top deck too much and don't realize that it is actually never more than about 20% of the metagame in open field tournaments and things like pro tours, it gets weird, but in open field tournaments, outside of rare occasions, things just don't go over 20, 25%. And when you like play a deck that's super tuned for the mirror and super metagame, you're setting yourself up for failure, I think quite
1: often. To tie it back to the, the question you asked me, Spencer, of why is deck choice important? That opportunity that Mason had by choosing Phoenix to, if people' sidewards didn't look that way, have all this advantage of being a deck that's powerful but not targeted by grave hit. That's why deck choice is so important. You tie it back to that, is that that's an opportunity that you're going to get that is only because of the fact that you chose that deck, right? You chose something that has this, you know, this weakness, but you identified maybe it wouldn't be there. Everything else about the decks game plans makes sense. But if there weren't those go blank, there aren't those hearses, those aren't, there aren't those, um, those rest in pieces. Now suddenly you're coming in a step ahead because people aren't prepared for you. And that's really where deck, deck choice gets to be so important.
0: I actually want to go back to that standard RC and like why, while my deck was a reasonable choice, I think it was actually a failure. Because I, I think that deck choice is important because one, it, it it is one of the things in your control. And I think that's like the number one thing we've highlighted, right? But also, it, it positions you to have the type of event that you're going to have. And it, it positions you against what people are feeling and thinking and, and doing. And for me, Mason talked about the pitfall that I fell into, where when I fixed my deck for... I'm trying to remember the matchups that I cared about. Like Grixis, which I thought was like super overrated... Not even worth it. That's why Raktos was so good in that event. And then the green white uh, toxic deck, and then the mono red deck. Like just kind of getting ready for like the the things that I expected. And then the mirror. Uh, what ended up happening is like d- two two things happen. One, Ractus happened, where it's like you know what we don't actually need Corpse Appraiser, and if we don't need Corpse Appraiser and this counter spell then we can play... For what's worth... I've actually tech- tested against Rakdos. Uh, I had never played against Nib with Mono White. Let me tell you the thing that... It's me- Ob. Or, ob, thank you. I did that twice now. Uh Yeah, let me tell you the thing that beats Mono White with Rakdos. It's Ob. Unless you're Abe. I think I actually watched Abe beat Mono White in that event. The thing is here is that... I, I think that my deck choice was wrong, not because of a not because like uh you know it's Spencer like why do you play white cards but Spencer you're you're not smarter than seven hundred people.
2: Yeah I also think there was one thing where like players underexplored the white deck. I remember Sam Black adding Bitter Union Fable to the deck and I think that was a really smart ad, you know, and at least for that weekend it made sense and then we saw um Autumn Burchett played Black and do really well at the Pro Tour a couple weeks later and was promoting that beforehand. And those were all things where maybe some splash going there. I also, one of the things you mentioned where you think you prepared is, I remember on the show you were like, Esper is good, but it has trouble with this deck. And like, that is, I'm not super worried about it, right? You were like, it's a good deck, I'm prepared, but I'm like, not super worried. I think maybe a place you uh, slipped up was, if that's true, can Esper adapt to me? And what would they do? And does my plan fit into that, right? And I don't remember you really playing against Esper that much, but I know a lot of the Esper Legends players there were pretty happy with their white po- uh, post plan. They weren't in love, but they were like, after game one, I feel pretty good about things. The game one, I can go one, two, three on you.
0: Yeah, for you know? what it's worth, I did not play against Esper, but I did play against four uh, Color, which mm-hmm. uh, what had Archangel in it. And that card is a beating for Mono White. For what it's worth, I, I do think that you know, I, I think I think Mono White was a reasonable choice for that event. Mm-hmm. The results do not say that, right? Like I think the, the there was only one Mono White in the top sixteen of that RC. However, um, I I had actually done coverage on a really big Utah tournament where one of the players a, a standard RC actually where one of the players. Went under the feed through Swiss and then had to get really unlucky to lose to mono blue, which is a really good matchup with literally Fable of the Mirror Breaker mono white. I had that information. I didn't use it. So
2: really quickly on deck selection, I want to highlight one thing about the modern format real quick and yeah. sort of use as a, a point here. So I'm looking at goldfish per like, you know, Abe mentioned earlier, if you just look at the first 10 row the first 10 decks whatever you're gonna end up in a pretty good spot and i think one of the things we talked about with the reasonable deck is able to adapt to what's going on right we sort of mentioned like you're able to prepare for plans or like your general plan is good enough against what other people are doing right so if you look at the top 10 of goldfish right now it's scam four color living end modern neutron burn murktide indomitable creativity yogmoth, hammer amulet i would argue every single one of those decks except burn is actually able in some way to sort of adjust to what's going on and is actually a high agency deck. Uh, Tron is maybe a little bit of a but I think Karn the Great Creator and your packages actually do make that the case. So with that going on there, you actually see nine of the 10 decks that are sort of the most played decks in Modern are decks that can adapt and really adjust to what's going on. I think if you think Living End isn't a high agency deck, you just haven't played Living End. And these, not to say agency is good or agency is reasonable, I think players are addicted to it, more than just, these decks are able to adapt to what's going on. And that is like a real strength of a deck in the metagame. They are less pinned in by what they're able to do and sort of what their prey is. And that's why I think you don't see decks like Titan shift anymore. You know, there are other factors like Murktide and Raghavan, but uh, in general decks that are more rigid, actually have a much harder time succeeding currently in magic and the flexibility and able to adapt when cyborg cards really matter. And, We see this happen in Stater in some ways where because the metagame is actually smaller, it's easier to adapt. And in modern, the tools to adapt where in Pioneer, you're sort of walking this middle line where you kind of have to have high impact, single target, lots of things to really switch a matchup uh, or pick a deck. So I I think there's a lot going on deck selection, but you'll notice a common trend of people being able to actually adapt to what's going on. And that is a sign that your deck is good. Not to say decks below that line aren't doing that, but is a common trend I'm noticing.
0: Abe, hey, how do you confirm that you've made a reasonable choice when it comes to deck selection?
1: I think that what really defines it being a reasonable choice, and it's it's really been spoken to by the points we all just brought up, right? Like, Mono White, in your case, Spencer, at, at that RC, was a reasonable choice. A lot of people played it. Some people did well with it. Some people didn't. Mason, you just talked about how all these decks in, in Modern, you know, any of those decks you play them, sure, they might not be the most cutting edge, might be playing most of the, like, broken cards, they might even be poorly positioned but it's really a question of how wrong can you be I and mean, when you play a reasonable deck it's hard to be really really wrong you know you're you're always going to be you're always going to be in a spot of being at least a little right you know your deck's going to be competitive it's going to be in in that good spot and that really is what to me is, is that hallmark of a reasonable choice if you're being a reasonable deck gamer you're focused on making sure you're not getting it too wrong rather than trying to make sure you get it perfectly right which I think is something that you know a lot of people think too much about, or uh, you know, kind of when you see people stumbling over their own like over their own feet, or maybe you know, you're like, oh, why why is it they're always playing a deck that doesn't really make sense? Like maybe they're thinking a little too hard about it. It's about not thinking so hard about it being perfect. It's about it being good enough. And I think that when you really look at being a reasonable deck gamer, that's that's at, at the core of it.
0: So we're gonna we're gonna get into some outliers later in the episode. But I think that like the truth, the truth of the matter is that you have to be willing to say like, okay, what is X? So one of the, for
2: example, I'm just gonna give you an example. Rhinos wasn't mentioned when Mason was going over modern. Yeah, rhinos has fallen off because of the metagame trend. Like things have just yeah. shifted for rhinos. I think I think we were wrong about rhinos for like a two week period, hold but hold then on. I think it kind of fell back.
0: I don't know where rhinos is right now, and I I also don't think that like. Rhinos has had time to adjust and understanding one of the things that was really cool about like the Mason's experience with the RCs and like his experience with Phoenix is like, what tools do I have and how do I have them? And there is going to be some ambiguity when you decide that you're going to play a reasonable deck and trying to confirm that you're playing a reasonable deck. Listen, you can just play Merktide. You can just play like Scam. You can just play. Rakdos or Monogreen, those are just going to be reasonable decks right now. None of those decks have been outside of the top three for however long. Like, it, it, that's just factual. However, that doesn't mean that that's your scope, right? It's not just play a top three deck. That's not what we're saying. It's play a reasonable deck. And I think that's the difference. And, like, the question here is, like, how do I know if humans is the right choice here? How do I know if spirits is the right choice here? And, and that's the hard question, Mason. And as somebody that like
2: literally played humans at a Pro Tour, did you feel like you played a reasonable deck? Yeah, I, I think especially given the amount of time I had for it. Like I think about that Pro Tour a lot where I just did not get to play any Pioneer beforehand and was sort of locked on playing an aggressive deck of some kind uh, from the beginning. And like, I think had I gone back and had just a couple days, I probably would have played Neoform in that Pro Tour. Not even because it was the best, but because I think it was, sort of well positioned and underappreciated at the time but like i played a deck that had pretty good plans it i think it put two i put one person in the top eight and another in the top 16 that person to be fair did have a innovative take on it with uh having ossification in the main over brave the elements but you know still a solid finish or whatever and i feel like i played a totally reasonable deck even if you know it did not do very well i think statistically it had like a 39% 39% win rate at the Pro Tour, which is really bad. I also hurt that because I tried to drop, they wouldn't let me, and I scooped to a dude, and then I forgot to drop and lost another round, but, you know, whatever. So another 40% win rate, you know, who cares? But regardless, you know, the deck was reasonable, and I don't regret it given the situation I was in where I just literally could not, literally couldn't play Pioneer before the Pro Tour, and I had to spend all my time on one thing, and I chose to draft a bunch because that mattered more. I think that we've kind of established, like, some
0: ways that you can confirm it. Abe, if you were going to sum this up, like, you've got an here tomorrow. Uh, uh, Mason, I, I want to give an example, though, that, uh, that was said on this podcast. Mason had a coaching session, Abe, where somebody was going to play Gruul. He gave them a heuristic to play Gruul. Gruul, to me, uh, according to your thing, is a reasonable deck choice. How do you just solidify that in your mind, though, going into an event?
1: like i said i think the biggest rule of thumb that i would use is are you playing a deck that's going to show up on someone else's cyborg guide especially if, like if you're in the pioneer format and your deck is not in that you know if it's not on misplaced gender's red black cyborg guide you should ask yourself if my deck is a reasonable deck like i'm not going to say there's something wrong with playing karuga fires or whatever that deck obviously is powerful but you better have a really, really good, strong set of plans, and it might not be that—that's the thing you want to be doing all the time. It's not going to be well positioned every week. Whereas, if you're playing something like Mono Green, like Blue White Spirits, like Mono White Humans in Pioneer, all of those are decks that everyone kind of knows what they're up to. Everyone, you know, has to plan around them. Even like Rule Vehicles, right? Something that will show up, win a tournament, has has that capacity regardless. Even even Rhinos in Modern even if it's not in the top 10 decks right now, that's still a deck I would say is very reasonable. You know, it has, it it is doing something in line with what matters in the format. It's cascading into into Rhinos and putting, you know, that power into play. It has a lot of free interaction and it it plays the right kind of game to have a chance, right? It was at the top pretty recently. If you're something that shows up on someone's radar, if you're something that, you know, everyone kind of is a known quantity for and for good reason, that's where you know you're in the right spot.
2: Yeah, I can say that this all started because I toped my first SCG, and then it was like, okay, I had planned to grind uh, SCG in the year 2020. Good thing I decided to start a little early, uh, and I had, you know, just kind of got a jump start on points, right? And I had a bunch of IQs coming up, and I was like, well, I can play like nine IQs in a row, and then play the last five opens in a row, and if I at least top uh, 64 all of them and get at least one top 32 i should end up barely in the top 48 for the or the top 32 for the uh one by however it was 64 right abe that's what it used to be for scg 64 yeah so a
1: year was, for, for one by yeah
2: yeah i was like i can easily end up in the top 64 if i just consistently top eight some of these iqs win a couple and then just top 64 all these scgs i will end up in the top 64 only playing half the events of the year that everyone else has And that would give me the one buy for 2020. And I ended up almost breaking into the top 32. Uh, I think some very handsome dude with a good smile ended up actually in that spot. But, uh, you know, like the... I was in the running for it despite playing a little less. And my bar and sort of how this all got started, the idea was... If I'm going to be playing these events, I can't afford to be taking huge risks, right? And I need to be playing reasonable decks because my goal... I would love to have top eight and I lost a couple more winning ends during that time, like playing humans and that sort of thing during that era. But I still put myself in a position where it's like, I need to top 64 and get one top 32. And if I do that, my goal is to set myself up for a buy. So the next year I can make a real run at things. I can't do that without the buy. I I need that sort of help. And it put me in a position was like, how do I know it's a reasonable deck? The answer is if I go up to someone like Abe, who I barely knew at the time, or, harlan or someone from team lotus box you know and they were like hey mason you know what are you playing this weekend they don't raise an eyebrow you know they're not like that's weird you know if i if i didn't really know abe then but i think had i gone up to abe at any of those weekends abe would have been like oh that's reasonable you know we're like oh sure that makes sense right and that's sort of how it all started and yeah, to be fair me,
0: uh, abe and i have been on mars for the last like seven years so probably gonna talk to him i do want to say like there are some pitfalls that happen in this process because you know, I, I thought about how I thought Mono White was reasonable, but like I could have, I couldn't have ended up where Sam ended up. I, I mean, not only that, like I definitely talked to Sam before the RC, right? Like it wasn't like, it wasn't like I was blind to what Sam was playing. What, what do you guys think? There are some pitfalls. I'll, I'll kind of go first. I, I think that my pitfall was thinking that I knew something that somebody else didn't. And I think that there's a weakness here that actually was highlighted. Uh, first of all, I want to say I love this podcast. I, I think they're all great. But like First Strike actually highlighted this really well, where they're like, people that qualify for the RC are dumb. And it's like, that's not true. Assuming that everyone that you're going to play against the RC is similar to like the lowest level of competition in an RCQ, is just wrong. It's, it's not true. And I think that that's kind of how I prepared, as though I was preparing against a bunch of RCQ players. I think that's like a huge pitfall for something like that. And I remember having actually the same problem at my Pro Tour, where I ended up playing like, like Saber whatever it is, that like bl- bounces my Hornet Queen in the Monogreen Mirror at, at Pro Tour Origins. Like, yeah, it's really good in the Monogreen Mirror to have this, but guess what? People are going to figure out how to beat mono green devotion or green red devotion instead of doing this. And that's like a huge pitfall that I fall into a lot. The next is like, I find this true, really true in modern, but I don't know if I find it true like other places, but like other people won't play X. It's just wrong. Like some, but somebody's going to play it. And it's fine if you want to not put your points as we talked about in like that RPG sheet into that matchup. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And I, I often fall into that mistake.
2: Uh, what about you, Mason? I think a mistake that I see quite often, well, to starters, it is the inverse of what you said. And I kind of mentioned earlier in the show of like, oh, I am prepared for the mirror or like for the, this top deck or whatever it is. And I have, you know, all my points in this or I have like dedicated seven of my cyborg slots and it's like a 10 deck meta game. And it's like, do any of these cards overlap? And you're like, yeah, maybe one. You know, it's like not really getting a lot of impact there. I, I think that is a mistake that sort of happens a lot in deck selection. And I think the other one is this idea that you have to like win it all where it's not worth it or whatever. And I, we had Callen come on and oh my gosh, almost a year ago now, hard to believe. Uh, but Kellen Pastor came on and talked about like kind of picking a deck for an event, right? And talked about how like, listen, if the only thing that matters is like you winning the event, then you should maybe play a deck with a higher risk or whatever, right? Versus, like, if your goal was something like mine, where it's like you want to top 64 in that situation, then it was like, we're the RC, right? I guess now it's top 32. We're in the new era, everybody, 16 less slots for the Pro Tour. But if you're trying to top 32 and get to the Pro Tour, you maybe want to take a little bit less of a risk, right? I think that is something that doesn't get brought up enough. Abe, is there anything that jumps out to you? Yeah, I think what really jumps out to me in terms of like
1: what the most common Pitfalls or traps people fall into when they wind up choosing a deck that isn't reasonable is kind of tied into something else we're going to talk about, which is they find a reason for something to be good. And I've done this probably my favorite pitfall story of my own was um back in the green white token standard format uh, with like Gideon Alexander Car and, uh, and Sylvan Advocate. The name of that card, yeah, yeah, yeah. one uh, of those cards uh, like should And
0: never was that's Gideon, and then the other one was Sylvan Advocate that was like really good. Yeah, okay.
1: Yeah, so so that that Arcanine de- So I during that that format, I had this long conversation with my friend Jonathan Skenic about how it is I'm gonna play the Grixis Dark Dwellers deck that was really good against the uh, Cryptolith's right decks that did not exist anymore, but how that was gonna have a good chance against Green White, which it never did. And the answer was Mind Rot. And I was like, yo, Mind Rot works. You get them to like you get rid of their Dramoka or their Avicen, you're able to like control the game and keep it small, get rid of their like abundance of cards. The game just needs to line up that way, and it happens, and you'll be good. And then I had a moment where I played a GP Day 1 with Mind Rot in my deck, and I was playing, like, round 6... And I was looking at this Mind Rot I'd registered in a Grand Prix. And I was like, what am I doing here in a standard constructed Grand Prix putting actual Mind Rot in my deck? And I put it down and played Green White the very next day in the Super Sunday Series and lost in the finals. I was like, wow, I could have been doing this the whole time by just playing the more reasonable deck, right? I had thought that I had figured out something so smart. And it did work, right? The plan that I thought of did make sense. It did work. It was just the the juice was not worth the squeeze that I'd imparted upon myself. And despite having done all this work and had this really smart solution, this problem, that didn't mean it was the right thing. And my deck was still poorly positioned and then it wasn't a reasonable choice. So when you fall into that pitfall, it's usually because you think you figured out the thing that solves the problem, but there's a million ways to solve a problem. And you need to make sure that the way you're solving it actually, right everything else about the solution there. Makes sense too, because if it doesn't, it's not worth it.
0: I love that one because I didn't know there was another SSS finals loser on the podcast. Uh, oh, I threw against Edgar. Uh, it I, I lost. I lost two of them, and I was at GPS, and I was like, "I'm the worst. I'm the I'm the worst ever." But two, I, I do. I do think it's the biggest football. Like you assume you know something nobody else knows, and that your thing is the best thing because you're like, it feels good to feel smart. Like it is, it is not even just like a magic error. It's like a human error that we're all gonna fall into. And I think the next point, and the probably the last point of the show, is the biggest one. Is like, how often do you really break it? And I'm I'm gonna go first on this one. Team CCMTG with me, Michael, Danny, Matt. Like the the when we were when we were going, we often had one of the best decks. Uh, we got multiple pros in there. We had the decks that CFB had, like, and I, I'll be honest, like, it is not that we broke it because guess what? Neither did those teams. Other people had that stuff. And I, I want to talk about a few things. You're not going to break it. Like, that's the first thing that I want to say is that if you do, you'll know it pretty quick because it will be like, there's no chance that somebody else did this thing. And if they did, good for them. But don't next level yourself. But like, try themes. The good example of this is, uh, the, when I won states the second time, I won with a teamer energy Aetherworks Marvel deck that my team was at the Pro Tour with at the time. Um, where all I did different was I added Spell cloak to the sideboard to beat the mirror. It, it's not hard to like figure that out, right? Like, I think the first time that everybody played with, all of the energy cards and all of the stuff, like you figured out, like, oh, I can put like Chandra into play or Ulamog, like, I can put whatever I want into play. So, like, yeah, try themes, try combos. I, I think that, you know, the number of times where I, we've all probably tried to combo out, thought we were the smartest person in the room, then like three other people posted Twitter before us. And then I think Masons of Everyone was like, don't focus on the results if you think you've broken it. Because the, the truth is, is like in formats like that, you don't really know what's going to happen. I think of this modern Pro Tour. Like, I'm really interested to see if MDGO has any impact on this this modern Pro Tour, or if like people have really figured out some Lord of the Ring stuff with with food or with asthma like just that kind of stuff. And to me, like you're not going to break it because somebody else is also going to get there. And I think we saw that thing with Team Handshake. We've seen that thing with East Coast, West, or East, whatever the bull team was, and Channel Fireball, and SCG. Like, the, you you can get a really good deck. You can get really good things in conclusion with other people. But the chance that you get Cobblade is pretty close to zero. And I think it's a huge pitfall that I wanted to cover. I don't, I don't know. What about you, Abe?
1: Whenever I think about this, a I think that the ability to quote unquote break it or even brew is kind of its own skill in magic that you kind of need to cultivate in yourself. You're not just gonna. Some people they really get it. They understand kind of the the moving pieces. Some people, I mean, even for myself, it's it's like kind of a weak area for me at times to figure out what exactly I'm trying to to make happen and how to best do it by deck building. But you know, Patrick Chapin in in talking about brewing, I think he said it was like one in ten ideas you ever brew are even worth play. Like they're even worth taking to a taking to the leagues and trying out one in ten. Of those, maybe one in ten wind up being things that you would actually register in a certain tournament. You know, and and that that really puts it in perspective that when you maybe you have that first one in 10 idea for yourself, that doesn't mean you've you've broken it and you're gonna be taking it to the tournament is going to be great. Right. That means that you've caught on to something and now you can refine that idea and try to see where it is that takes you, right? You can learn something from it and incorporate that in your next idea. And it's really an iterative process of, like you're saying, trying out, you know, different themes, different combos, you know, different uh, preying on different play patterns, finding different angles with which to to do things, but you're gonna break it, what's that I said? 1% of the time, If if it, even if it's just one in 10 and one in 10 might be generous, given the way things are, how fast information moves um, these days compared to, to when Chapin wrote that article. But one in a hundred times that you do this process, you're going to actually have broken it at the best. And so remind yourself, like, that's that's part of the value of being a reasonable deck gamer is you're going to avoid building a hundred decks and then looking at 10 of them and going, which one of these is the one that actually has a chance of being ahead of the field? Right. Instead, you're going to play something that's in line with the field and and leverage other opportunities for for edge instead of just your deck selection being what's giving you the edge. And that's really where where the power comes into
2: play. I think Jerry mentioned this two weeks ago, and he came on the show of just like you're not going to break it. Like he mentioned, one of his worst habits was he always thought he was the smartest guy in the room and that he had to break it, or whatever. And it came from that era. And admittedly, you know, he's someone who did do that a fair bit, right? And even he's telling you not to do that with someone where that's sort of his strengths and his like home skills uh, lie. And so I think that should be really telling. I love everything these guys said. I'm just going to very quickly harp this home real quick of results don't matter and don't focus on them, like Spencer said. And that means winning as well. I think a lot of people hear that and they're like, yeah, you know what? Sometimes if I lose, that's true too. But sometimes it's you're winning. You need to be looking back like, wow, my opponent – didn't play super well or they missed a bunch of attacks or their decks weren't very good, right? Like they were playing, you know, Merfolk or whatever. I just played against Merfolk in five league matches, you know, and my deck has a bunch of Furies. Of course I was winning, you know? So do not care about results as much and instead care about, does this seem powerful? Does this seem strong? And if you're asking yourself right now, Mason, how do I do that if I'm not winning games? try to think about how games typically play out and if that would be good enough to overcome them. Because you're not going to get a real sample size from playing. Playing is a way to let you see how the cards interact so you can think about it in your head more.
0: Awesome. I love that. I, I think that we've covered this topic really well. If you have any questions, leave a comment on the YouTube or uh, you know hit us up in the Discord if you're a patron of $5 or more. One of the benefits of being a patron uh, is that you get ask questions like this one. Uh, how do you take your steak, or portobello mushroom if vegetarian, and why? I'm gonna let you guys in to first. I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot it over to eight.
1: Uh, you know, reasonable steak gamer. I'm a I'm a mid rare guy because it's the correct combination of being tender and juicy, and also not being too bloody.
2: Yeah, I make sure to take my steak out on a nice dinner first. Ask them about their day, see how they're doing, and then you know from there. I then talk about hanging out more later. So that, that's how I take my steak. What about you, Spencer? I just don't need steak, so I, I don't even know like the answer to the question. Whenever uh, I have steak, I just say one of the words of people, and I'm like, I hope that one's good. <laughs> so I learned something really important. It, it might have been at
0: the first GP Vegas because we went and we went a lot of money at black, like a lot. Uh, in a we won an inappropriate amount of money at blackjack to the point where like. We went to a steakhouse that I could not afford today. And the waiter walked away. I was like, they didn't ask me. I was like, wait, you didn't ask me about my steak. I was like, and they said, quote, you don't get that option here. And since then, I've been to a lot of expensive steakhouses on the dime of the fact that I work out of the tech industry. And let me tell you, you don't get the option at a good steak. You, you cannot tell the cook to cook your steak that's that's not an option so i take it how the chef prepares it is the correct answer it's usually uh, mid-rare yeah some it can be rare depending on the type of steak yeah depends on the cut yeah most cuts but but it is probably medium rare the highest possible dollar to buy a steak they will they they would laugh at you if you asked and they would kick you out if you said the thing that some people try to say. They would literally say you don't So, get so that Mason, you. this is this is a good heuristic for steak. Yeah. It's the same as
1: magic. Would you rather have a rare or an M rare?
2: A uh, mythic rare. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I love that Spencer is just like role playing the bear at restaurants. He's like they like what is the cut whatever and he goes, "Yes, chef. Whatever you say, chef." <laughs> and then moves on.
1: The bear is so good.
0: I just. Dude, started sir, I didn't okay. do that. I was like very clearly gonna ask for medium rare, and they're like, "You don't, you don't get the option." Like, but now, but now, sir, now you're yes, chefin. So that that's not true. If I like go to a place that is not like a high end steakhouse, I ask for medium rare. Also, do, yes, you're chef. a chicken ape. What do you mean the blood? What do you, get out of here. The it's good part. The good part. Like get out of here. Why don't you just get it blue
1: then, dog? What's what's up?
0: If it was mooing, I would eat it. Well, I'm from a little further east than you. That's a oh, little is just untrue. When you think about how big America is, come on. Uh, if you want to uh, talk about steak, leave a YouTube comment and tell us how yours is cooked. Uh, we'd be happy to debate this a little bit more on the show. You join the conversation by joining the Patreon Discord for patrons of $5 or more a month. You can also join the public Discord. We got Fantasy Football going. We already got one league full, but we're happy to do more, as well as check out the other podcasts and the other things going on on the network. You can follow us on Twitter at CCMTG, or on threads at CCMTG underscore pod. The wonderful, wonderful podcast that is that Sam Black uh, on drafting archetypes. Uh, if you were going to the Pro Tour and didn't listen to that podcast, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, you can like comment sub and review you got a very kind review i really appreciate that type of stuff so thank you so much and where can people find you
2: mason clark you can find me over at twitch.tv slash the mason clark i'll be doing a watch party of at least friday of the constructed rounds and probably saturday of the constructed rounds of the pro tour i will be asleep uh when the finals is happening but Maybe we'll do like a review of that. I'll also, just be streaming there pretty regularly during the morning. Coaching has not lined up well with it recently, but I'm trying to do that. You can find me each and every week over at Card Kingdom, writing an article. You can find me on Twitter at Mason E. Clark. If you're interested in coaching, you can reach out to me via there on Twitter and DM me, and we can have a conversation. Or you can email me, uh, which is my email is masaneclark at gmail.com, and we can figure that out for you. Abe, what about you? You can find me over at twitter.com
1: slash more nothings. You can find me on blue sky under however you search those names. Uh, more nothings. I haven't really done anything there yet, but given I was a given an invite and B given recent terrible business decisions. Who knows? You can also now breaking news, but you were hearing it for here. First, officially you can find me doing coverage of the energy series with Mason. Uh Oh,
2: dang. I, I didn't even know that. That's official official. Yeah, that's i me love and... this
0: so much that's
2: it yeah i, I knew you're getting talked to i didn't know if it had been like official official yet that's this it. i'm excited best. to work with you
0: i love that you told that to Mason on the podcast
2: that made
1: me um day. and you might be able to find me depending on time of day on mason's restream of uh of the pro tour depending on, on if I'm. oh
2: sure. it's gonna be 8 a.m baby that i got my alarm set 8 a.m that... on on saturday uh, Friday and Saturday. Well, Friday I have a job that I can
1: oh go my. somewhere. Well, I, and have I, I also hang out job. I magic. cannot
0: be watching But Saturday's for me. the boys. So
1: yeah. I, I've got yeah. like a team tournament going on in the afternoon,
0: but I can probably. I would be down if Abe is down to jump on stream with you.
2: Yeah, to sure. Watch
0: the first You're welcome. On Saturday.
2: Yeah, I'm welcome. I'm happy to do that. I also, I would follow my Twitch channel. I'm going to be doing something pretty big for charity. I had to actually get a programmer to write the script to do this thing, and I'm really excited to do it. And it's be really cool, and it's going to be raising money for a good cause, and that's probably going to happen in about two weeks. So I'll, I'll talk about more yeah. when I lead up to it. It's one of those things that I will just be promoting a lot. So keep your eye out for that.
0: you buy me, it spends 13H on whatever the app is called. I don't, I don't know what it is. Depends on which update you're on. Honestly, like I, I, to be completely honest with the listeners, like I'm probably gonna take a little bit of a step back from social media while all this happens. If you have a blue sky invite, I'm super interested. But like starting a new job, it's a really good time for me to take a step back. I've already reached out to uh, the last person that I was coaching, letting them know that like I'm taking a step down. Yeah, just if you want to find me, I'm sure that I'll see it. Just, uh, you know, look for me somewhere. What did we learn on the show this week? Mason, you were gone last week. What did you learn this week? I learned I'm doing coverage with Abe. I I didn't know. I love that you did that so much, Abe. (laughs) (laughs) I
2: I didn't know. And also it's one of those things where I I didn't know if it was going to happen or not. So it's just like, I will keep my mouth shut and Abe will let me know. Or Abe will let me know by not bringing it up. (laughs) You know, so I'm happy to see it work out like this. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I learned... That you would eat cow that is mooing. That's
0: maybe hyperbole, which I'm working on. Maybe I shouldn't do. I I literally posted Twitter. I'm working on this. Uh, I will say this. I'm a member of the FFA and I owned a pig that I named barf because that's when I asked my dog to name it, he sounded like that's what he said. So that's what I named it that. And when I sold it for an exorbitant amount of money, because it was a very large pig, uh, I felt zero regrets. Last night we watched, we were watching TikTok me and my wife, and uh, there was like a small baby pig, and I said that looks delicious, and she said, "What is wrong with you?" So pigs are really smart. Uh, yeah, they're also really smelly. I don't know if you've ever tried to get pig crap out of a leather jacket, Abe, but it you have to use toothpaste. Like nothing else
2: will get the smell out. Hey, I got a quick question. Why do you know that? <laughs> I literally... What? what? Did, you, did you have a leather jacket on and you were shoveling pig poop no. and you were just like, no, ah, because poop. pigs projectile poop, Mason. That's that's what I learned this episode. <laughs> pig projectile poop. That sounds like a positioning problem on your end. <laughs> There's not enough time left
0: on this podcast to defend myself, but I, uh, you know, I won ribbons in the FFA. You know, one of one of the things that I kind of learned this this week was just kind of the levels that you have to go through to convince yourself of something. And I, I think I knew that, but it really reinforced it when you think about the number of th- I like personally like the number of times that I have registered a deck that I thought was busted. I actually remember a time where I didn't do this, and I'll just kind of wrap up the show with this: of um, there was a Grand Prix. It might it was either Portland or it was somewhere on the West Coast. Where I had a blue-red spirits deck in standard that was crushing, crushing my teammates. And I was like, I cannot register a two-one for three and feel good about myself with Flash. I don't remember like the rest of the card. I think it like you know, that's Yeah, there we go. Yeah. And so I didn't register it. I ended up making day two. And the one teammate that like believed in me so much, like registered it. And when like, oh, four. And he's like, why did your deck do so bad? I was like, I don't know why you played it. I didn't play it. But yeah, that's it for this week's episode of CCMG. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you guys all next week with another episode of Constructed Criticism.